This is I Spy, the show from foreign policy where spies tell their stories. Abu Zubaydah was telling us about his own idea of kidnapping American soldiers and beheading them on camera. And he said that helped a lot in putting the fear in the hearts of the enemies, both in Chechnya and during the Bosnian War with the Serbs. So I remember telling him, like, this is disgusting. I mean, look at us now. We're, we're, we're treating you well. We saved your life. So if you catch us, will you behead us? And basically he said, no, absolutely, I will behead you. From Foreign Policy, welcome back to I Spy. On each episode, we get one former intelligence operative to tell the story of one operation. I'm Margot Martindale. Ali Soufan served as a special agent for the FBI, where he specialized in al-Qaeda investigations, both before and after the attacks of September 11th. In 2002, Soufan was sent to question a high-level jihadi captured in Pakistan. Abu Zubaydah. But after several rounds of interrogation at the secret site, he was sidelined by a CIA contractor who had helped develop a new torture program for the agency. Sufan's account takes place in a country he is still not allowed to name. Here is his story. I think it was March 29th of 2002. I was in New York. Uh, I've been on the road overseas nonstop almost since 9-11. And I got a phone call from the FBI saying that we need you to go on a mission. At the time, I finally had a couple of days off and I was planning to go with my fiance at the time to spend some time with our family in Pennsylvania. So I wasn't happy, but they said we arrested Abu Zubaydah and we need you to go and interrogate him. I knew of Abu Zubaydah very well. I actually had a source in Afghanistan, one of the very few sources before 9-11 reporting on him. Abu Zubaydah was involved in the planning of a series of attacks in Jordan to include uh, bombing hotels in Amman, the capital of Jordan, and attack the border crossing with Israel. Abu Zubaydah was not a member of Al-Qaeda. However, he is very closely associated with Osama bin Laden and Al-Qaeda network. For the Jordan plot, I was in charge of that investigation. That's the reason the FBI and the CIA wanted me to go and be part of the interrogation team of the very first high-value target that has been arrested after 9-11. So um, I went down to D.C. and then we went uh, on uh, a CIA chartered plane. And that's basically the team that went there at the time. So Abu Zubaydah was captured in Al-Qaeda safe house in Pakistan. It was a joint operation between the U.S. and the Pakistanis. Uh, He was injured during the arrest and taken to a hospital in Pakistan where he went under surgery to remove a bullet from his upper thigh. And then after that, he was taken to a third country for interrogation where we met him over there. 
we go there and we start cleaning a little bit the location, trying to make it, you know, ready for when Abu Zubaydah comes. So the very first thing when he came, I went in and I asked him, what's your name? And he looked at me and he said, Dawood, Dawood meaning David in Arabic. I looked at him, I had a smile on my face and I said, what if I call you Hani? He was shocked to hear that name. Hani was his childhood nickname. So you're like, huh? So basically, he realized that I even know what his mother used to call him as a child. So I know a lot of things, obviously, about him. You know, every interrogation is different, but you need to always have a lot of information on your hand when you go in. You need to know your subject. So when you go there and you're armed with all this information, this guy doesn't want to be caught in a lie. He wanted to appear to you as if he is cooperating because his life depends on it. So we started to talk and I asked him, I said, look, you're a very smart man, but you get caught. Why do you think you get caught? Any operation that you're planning and dealt with people that you were not really sure about and that's how you ended up with us here so he was just looking at me with this blank look and then I said why didn't you tell me about it and he gave us immediately information about uh, a plot in an allied country that was going on and he gave us the details we were shocked it was a bluff and it worked so we wrote that up we sent it immediately to Langley in the meantime, the medical team started to assess Abu Zubaydah's situation. And they were cleaning his wounds, and then we were trying to put ice on his lips and clean him and talk to him, build rapport with him. And then we decided that let him relax. So everyone went to a nearby hotel, and I stayed, me and one of the uh, agency medics, we stayed at the location with him. Later on, I was staying on a cot in a room next to where he is. And a colleague from the agency, one of the CIA medics that came with us from DC, he said, hey, can I talk to you for a little bit? I said, yeah, sure, come, come in. So he said, uh, how important this guy is? I said, he's pretty high up, he's connected. So he knows a lot of stuff. He said, well, if you need anything from him, you better go in and talk to him now because he is septic. And I was just like, what are you talking about? He said, yeah, I, most probably by the morning, he'll be dead. So I went to uh, the most senior uh, CIA person who basically stayed at that location with me. I woke him up and uh, told him what the medic told me. So he decided to call everybody from the hotel. They wrote a cable to Washington explaining the situation. And it's because of Zubaydah cooperated in giving us that plot. The answer came back, death is not an option. He's cooperating. He knows a lot. He seems to be giving you intelligence. Do whatever it takes to keep him alive. So we came up with a cover story with the local authorities to take him to a hospital in order to kind of like keep it under the radar and not raise a lot of eyebrows when we're in the hospital. 
He went through surgery in that hospital. They basically treated him very well. And in the same time, Washington sent a doctor, I believe from John Hopkins, I believe, uh, to come and oversee his situation and to be sure that all his medical needs are met. And frankly, I truly believe all these things happened because he was smart enough to cooperate immediately and give us a plot. Otherwise, I don't think all these issues could have happened. So after he came from the operation room, he had a lot of nurses around him and the nurses were wearing masks, surgical masks. And he opened his eyes and he had this kind of like looking around and he saw Steve and I. And suddenly he's kind of like, like, oh shit, kind of look on his face, like you guys again. So Steve approached him and he said, hey man, as if you saw a ghost. He said, I was looking around, I saw the light, and then I saw all these, you know, women covered. So I thought I'm in heaven and those are my, you know, 79 versions. And then suddenly I saw you guys, so I know I'm still in hell. <laughs> In the hospital, we became like Abu Zubaydah's next of kin. So we go with him to all these different tests that he has to do and exams. And the MRI machine was really small and Abu Zubaydah was big. And him and Steve and I were just like all laughing if he can fit in that machine or not. So that's kind of the relationship that we had with him during his time in the hospital. And in the same time, when he was able to talk, we did not waste any time. Even when his physical condition used to be a little bit difficult, he continued to cooperate with us. When he became too ill to speak, we literally used an alphabet chart and he used to point to communicate because at one point they have to put a tube in his neck in order for him to breathe. Abu Zubaydah was telling us about his own idea of kidnapping American soldiers and beheading them on camera. And he said that helped a lot in putting the fear in the hearts of the enemies, both in Chechnya and during the Bosnian War with the Serbs when they were caught by the Mujahideen. This is way before ISIS were doing beheadings. This is way before anybody did beheading on camera. So I remember telling him, like, this is disgusting. I mean, look at us now. We're, we're, we're treating you well. We saved your life. We're not evil. We're not the evil people that you think you are. So if you catch us, will you behead us? And basically he said, no, absolutely, I will behead you. So my partner, Steve at the time, they had this joke going between him and Abu Zubaydah. Abu Zubaydah always called him Steve Austin because he is the only Steve that he ever met. Steve Austin, in reference to the $6 million man old TV show. So Steve said, will you kill Steve Austin? Will you behead Steve Austin? And Abu Zubaydah looked at him very seriously and he said, yeah, absolutely. I mean, I will even behead you before him, pointing at me. And Steve had, you know, sarcastically um, a smile on his face and he said, nah, that's, that's not nice. I mean, really, Steve Austin? And he said, yeah, because you used to be in the U.S. military. So you deserve to be beheaded before him. So one day in the middle of an interrogation, Abu Zubaydah identified Khalid Sheikh Mohammed as the mastermind of 9-11. That's something that we did not know before. And I was shocked that it was Khalid Sheikh Mohammed. We did not even know that he was a member of Al-Qaeda. 
So he started talking about how the attack, the World Trade Center, developed uh, from early on. So basically, Khalid Sheikh Mohammed came to bin Laden and said, look, I have a plan to attack the World Trade Center with Cessna planes. Bin Laden was there with some of the top leaders of the organization. He listened to Khalid Sheikh Mohammed and then he said, why do you want to go to war with an X when you can go with a bulldozer? And they started changing the planes to include hijacking planes going from the East Coast to the West Coast because they will be filled with fuel and then hit the buildings with these planes. And at the time, the thought was at least the upper floors will collapse, but they never anticipated that the whole building will collapse. So a lot of the details about this early stage of planning was revealed to us by Abu Zubaydah. So Steve immediately walked out of the room and the CIA walked with him to tell him about this huge information that now we know the identity of the mastermind of 9-11. We stayed in the hospital for about 10 days. And the last day in the hospital, I think, the team from the CIA arrived from Washington and everything started to change. You're listening to I Spy, a production of Foreign Policy. We'll be right back. Hey listeners, I'm Colm Quinn, one of the writers here at Foreign Policy. We're a small magazine that covers a large territory, literally the whole world. And we try and tell you about the world the way I Spy tells you about espionage, with real stories about war and politics and diplomacy, with the kind of analysis that's hard to come by these days. I write our morning newsletter, which means I keep a funny schedule. I start my day in the afternoon, scanning news reports from around the world, Then, by about three in the morning, I've put together a digest that gives our readers all the news, all the intelligence they need to start their day. That newsletter is called Morning Brief, and you can get it by email each morning at no cost. To sign up, go to foreignpolicy.com slash ispy. All right, I'm off to get some sleep. Like most people, Pod Save America co-host Tommy Vitor thought foreign policy was boring and complicated until he got the education of a lifetime working for Barack Obama's National Security Council. It was a crash course that taught him two things. Anyone can understand these issues and we all have an obligation to try. That's why he started Pod Save the World, a weekly podcast from Crooked Media that breaks down international news and foreign policy developments, but doesn't feel like homework. Each week, he and former Deputy National Security Advisor and co-host Ben Rhodes walk you through the latest developments with a variety of experts. Count on hearing behind-the-scenes stories, funny anecdotes, and maybe a few F-bombs along the way. New episodes of Pod Save the World drop every Wednesday, Subscribe now on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome back to I Spy. We return to the FBI's Ali Soufan and his interrogation of Abu Zubaydah. The CIA interrogation team that came from Washington 
brought a contractor with them. I will call him Boris. And Boris had a totally different view about interrogations. Yeah basically said that he's an expert in the field. He supposedly have this plan that makes it a lot easier for us to interrogate Abu Zubaydah. And then Boris explained his plan is basically to diminish his ability to resist. You just take everything away from him. You make him totally dependent on you. You break him to the point that he cannot resist anymore. And then every question you ask, it will be easy. It will be like magic. So I was looking at him. I was like, are you freaking kidding me? I mean, what voodoo science is that? And he was insisting that it's biology, that's science. So I asked him, I said, did you ever interrogate a person in real life? He said, no. I said, do you know anything about Islamic extremists and jihadis and their mindset? I said, no. I said, anything about Al-Qaeda? Anything about the network that we're targeting here? He said, I don't need to know anything. I know science. So I said, okay, it's your show. The idea of Boris at the time was only one person should have access to Abu Zubaydah. That person as Boris described him, will be like his God. He will decide if he gets comfortable or not, if he lives or die. Abu Zubaydah needs to recognize that person as his God. And basically, Steve and I were supposed to go to the hospital one more time, and it will be the last time that we'll ever see Abu Zubaydah. We tell him we gave you an opportunity to give us the truth. You lied at every step of the way. You're not cooperating. Our boss is really pissed off. And he want to take over. And we're not going to be seeing you again. But you did this to yourself. Boris's idea was to take Abu Zubaydah to the location where we were before. Put him in a cell. Abu Zubaydah was stripped naked blasted with white noise and different loud music, subjected to extreme cold and temperature manipulation. And all the things did not work. So he started to ask permission for sleep deprivation, which he got for 24 hours, but he did 48 hours claiming that it was a mistake. Again, that did not work. And there was an escalation. Every time things does not work, he said, I would just need a little bit more. None of it worked. So Boris's instruction was to ask only one question and keep asking that question over and over and over again. So the officer, who is now the god of Abu Zubaydah, he walks into the cell and he tells Abu Zubaydah, tell us what you know. In response, Abu Zubaydah repeatedly asked him, what do you want to know? Boris told the God that you won't say anything. The only thing that you will say is, you know, and you walk out of the cell. So they did that again and again and again. The officer goes in. He says, tell us what you know. Abu Zubaydah says, what do you want to know? The officer said, you know, and he walks out. At one point, 
They even placed a piece of paper and a crayon in front of Abu Zubaydah, hoping that he would write down what he knew, quote-unquote. But he did not. What we were seeing is the exact opposite of how real effective interrogation takes place. Some people in Washington believed they need the magic key. One plus one equal two. You do this, you do this, you have full cooperation. My point that you're not going to be getting full cooperation, you will get only full compliance. To this guy, eventually, if you keep torturing him and you break all these glass ceilings that we never did in America before, if you do all these things, he's going to give us what he thinks we want him to say. And compliance leads to disasters. So, for example, Abu Zubaydah's partner, a Libyan uh, terrorist known as Ibn Sheikh al-Libi, when he was arrested, he was taken to a third country for interrogation. He was severely tortured, and he gave exceptional information at the time that made the pro-tortured factions in Washington ecstatic about the success of their techniques. He basically provided intelligence that Saddam Hussein and bin Laden were working together to develop WMD. That information made it to Colin Powell's speech on the UN and the Security Council. And if you remember that speech, Secretary Powell mentioned what kind of biological weapon Al-Qaeda and Saddam were working on and how dangerous that might be on American safety. And when we went to Iraq, we found out that that intelligence, that information was all a lie. So they went back to Ibn Sheikh and they asked him, why did you lie about this? He said, well, you were torturing me. That's what you wanted to hear. So I gave you what you wanted to hear. That information led to the Iraq war. During that experimentation phase, Abu Zubaydah did not provide any new intelligence. And people in Washington, and especially in Langley and in the White House, were saying, what the heck? Why did all the information stop and we don't have anything being transmitted from this guy? So we went back and we were allowed to start back our interrogation. But one of the conditions that we had that we will never go and talk to Abu Zubaydah when he's naked. So I always had a towel with me. And I used to cover him with the towel just out of respect to the culture. You know, you sit with the guy in front of you naked and talking to him like this. So we try to bring him back to where we were at the hospital. Uh, but in the same time, what we did is we tried to think outside the box. For example, we uh, had three wiretaps, you know, where information, phone calls that were intercepted and it was Abu Zubaydah talking to someone else. And we wanted to share that information with him. So we went to a close by shopping center and we bought, I don't know, 100, 150, something like this, uh, blank audio tapes. And we painstakingly marked each and every one of them. And we had these tapes put on a cart with an audio player and we rolled it to the cell. 
So Abu Zubaydah was looking at it and like, wow, wow, look at all this stuff. <laughs> the message that I wanted to send him, that it's not only phone calls that we have, it is also most probably a bug in his apartment. And a lot of the conversations that he's having in the apartment was most probably documented in these tapes. It's not true. All the tapes are empty. But he doesn't know that. This is when he started to tell us about the dirty bomb plot that these two guys, one is known as Abu Abdullah al-Muhajir and another guy, Talha. And he said these guys came to him basically and they said, look, we have this idea that we saw on the internet that you can do a dirty bomb by stealing radioactive material from a hospital and then you can kill a lot of people. So he continued to cooperate with us. So we are getting more information, sending it to Washington, thinking that, okay, you know, the worst is behind us. One day I came to the site and I see this big coffin in the hallway and my colleague from the agency was just there looking at it. And I said, what is this? And he said, well, what do you think? You know, the guy want to put Abu Zubaydah in it. And I think that was a red line that I don't think I was willing to cross. I wanted to know about how it feels to be in in a coffin, how he will feel about being in a coffin. So I actually, uh, I asked my CIA colleagues that put me in it and close it. And let me tell you, for a guy who is, uh, you know, like Abu Zubaydah, he has a fear of small spaces and stuff like that. This is going to be definitely uh, torture, especially that the idea was that they're going to go and bury him and saying that he's going to be buried alive. So this is when we decided that enough is enough. So called our headquarters, reported that we were asked to take a couple of days off, don't come to the site, and then they will make the decision in Washington. And then the decision came on behalf of Director Mueller that we don't do this kind of stuff and come back home. That's how we left the site. What happened is after we left, Abu Zubaydah stopped cooperating. So they left him in solitary confinement at the black site for about 45 days. And then they went back to talk to Abu Zubaydah and they had this claim that he have significant intelligence information that is extremely important. And that's why they need to apply enhanced interrogation techniques and waterboarding. He went through 83 sessions of waterboarding And towards the 83 sessions of waterboarding, he just repeated what we already have in the files and he already told us before. And they claimed that that was a success. So after 83 sessions of waterboarding, he finally told them that he is the number three person in Al-Qaeda. Even though he was not Al-Qaeda member, he lied. And then after they brought him to Guantanamo, They found out a lot of the stuff that they got from waterboarding were not accurate to include that he was a number three person in Al-Qaeda. So they asked him, why did you lie? And he's like, well, you know, (laughs) when you waterboard me, (laughs) that's what you want. That's what I gave you. But it's not true. I remember one agent who was uh, talking to Abu Zubaydah in Guantanamo. He showed him the photo of Abu Hafs al-Masri. And he said, do you know this person? 
And Abu Zubaydah looked at him, looked at the picture, and he said, well, this is the number three guy in Al-Qaeda. And he <laughs> gave it back to him. We're the United States of America. In 2002, we actually wrote countries up in the State Department to Human Rights Reports for doing the same thing that we were doing to Abu Zubaydah. Hypocrisy damages us as a country. We should lead by our values and our morality. What torture produced was false information that led us to the war in Iraq. What torture produced were images that galvanized the Salafi jihadi movements and gave a new birth for Al-Qaeda. What torture produced was hundreds, if not thousands of jihadis coming to Iraq after Abu Ghraib to fight alongside the insurgency against the United States. After Al-Qaeda and the Salafi jihadi groups were really a dying breed in the aftermath of 9-11. So if you look at all these things together, we did some stuff that totally contradicts our laws, our values, our strategies that prevented us from winning hearts and minds during an insurgency, and also at the same time prevented us from bringing justice to all the people who were killed. So overall, it's a failure. Ali Soufan spent eight years with the FBI. He describes his experiences in the book, The Black Banners, Inside the Hunt for Al-Qaeda. A CIA review board censored parts of the Abu Zubaydah story when the book first appeared in 2011. But last year, the agency allowed the full story to be told in a new reprint. I Spy is a production of Foreign Policy, our executive editor for news and podcasts is Dan Efron. Our iSpy team includes Rob Sachs and Amy McKinnon. If you like the show, please subscribe on your favorite platform and leave us a review. If you have tips or suggestions, please write to us. iSpy at foreignpolicy.com. iSpy is made possible through the support of foreign policy readers. If you're interested in not just espionage, but smart geopolitical news and analysis from Washington and around the world, please consider subscribing. iSpy listeners can get a 10% discount by going to foreignpolicy.com slash subscribe and using the promo code PODCAST at checkout. Next week on iSpy. I broke all the rules of secrecy and I began delivering the message that Hackle had given to me to everybody who would listen. I did everything I could to get the message out. That's next week on iSpy. I'm Margot Martindale. <laughs>